Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 74, I speak with Steve Grace, CEO and founder of The Nudge Group. It grew 135% last financial year to do over $2.6 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss why he skipped university after thinking he wanted to be a marine biologist before trying to be a professional tennis player and then falling into the IT recruitment industry in London. Why he moved to Sydney in the late 1990s and hard lessons he learned from running multiple different businesses with different business partner structures. How he turned the recruitment model on its head to purpose-fit startups and scale-ups, opened offices all over the world, and why he always leads with value first rather than trying to sell recruitment services. If you are looking to connect with world-class talent from startup to unicorn, check out thenudgegroup.com. That's T-H-E. N-U-D-G-E-G-R-O-U-P dot com. So I'm here with Steve Grace, the CEO and founder of The Nudge Group. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Derek. Nice to be here. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started The Nudge Group? What did you study? What type of early jobs did you have? (laughs) So I didn't actually study. Um, I got into university to do marine biology, but I never went. Um, I went and played tennis for about 12 months and I sort of got on my coaching exams and all that kind of sort of uh, dream of being in the tennis world, but I was nowhere near good enough, nowhere near good enough. And so when that sort of decided to end that, I went and did a lot of different things. I started out doing, um, believe it or not, I was a waiter in a, in a management center, like a big old classic home. And then I sort of thought I need to do something. And I went to quite a, I was very lucky that I went to quite an exclusive school. And because of the ties from that school, I found it very easy to get a job in finance in London. So I was living in Surrey, but I was I got this job in London for part of NatWest Bank, which was an organization called Lombard North Central, which was a motor finance division of, of the bank. Um, and I did that for about three years and I hated it. I'm not particularly numeric. I'm very dyslexic, um, which is why studies never really appealed to me. And if you want to get anywhere in finance, you have to keep doing exams. And that, to me, was just horrific. So I left that and I went into a company called Computer People, which was one of the first sort of IT recruiters. This is a long time ago, uh, maybe 96 or something like that, in London, in Piccadilly Circus. And they said, why don't you come work here? And so I did. And that's sort of how I, I fell into recruitment, where I uh, where I spent maybe four or five years in London working in recruitment at Computer People. And then I moved to sort of Hayes and worked in investment banking technology recruitment before I really just thought, you know what, I need to go to Australia. I'd never been. I'd always liked the sun. I'm a solar-powered human being, and I was really excited to go somewhere warm. So I applied for a few jobs, and this was before everyone here was English in recruitment. And I got offered all of them. Um, I took one with a company called Candle. Um, who's still in existence now. They're called Clarius Group now. They've had a few different MA things happen. But so I came over and joined that team. They flew me out. This was in the days when you really got treated well, like lucky now to get a flight if you if you are lucky. I got flown over. I had a limo pick me up that took me to this apartment, this service department that they were giving me for three months, paid for, that overlooked the harbor, looked at the bridge and the opera house in North Sydney. 
And then this company came and they drove me around all these apartments and helped me find an apartment. And then they helped me furnish it. Like it was a real royal treatment. Like you just don't get that now. And I was what, 26 years old. I thought this place is awesome. Um, and that was sort of my first recruitment job here. And it was a really interesting time in Australia in that it was 1999. Um, so obviously we had, I was here for millennium, which was amazing. Um, you know, the first, first sort of major city to see, see the, the new millennium. And it was it was the middle of summer, which which for me, having come from freezing cold, London was also amazing. And we had the year 2000. Uh, I don't know if you remember the year 2000 bugs. So technology recruitment was going gangbusters because everyone thought that as soon as the clocks went zero, 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 if the planes were going to fall out the sky and all this. So there was so much work. So I thought it was really, really easy to make money, you know, in a job that's commission based coming from a very competitive market in London. Um, to coming here where the sun's out and there's loads of work and the commission's flowing and England even won the, the Rugby World Cup the next year. I was like in this dreamland. I was, And that's why I probably ended up staying. I, I think I never planned to come and live here permanently. Um, that was 24 years ago now. So I've nearly nearly had the same amount of time in, in both cities. But I think that kind of lifestyle just really, really appealed to me. Um, as much as I am a Londoner, I'm not into suits. I'm not into jackets. You know, I'm very much a t-shirt and thongs kind of person, which you can't can't do in London. So I sort of settled into the Sydney lifestyle, if you like, an Australian lifestyle, super, super quickly. Um, and then from there, I went and worked for um, Hayes again um, here in um, Australia, where I did my management training. And, and I did what pretty much everyone does who goes to Hayes from the UK. And it's still a tradition now is the day you get your residency, you you pretty much resign. Um, I'm sure if anyone from Hayes is, is listening to this, they will know that. And anyone who works at Hayes is probably already planning it. But it's it's a it's almost like a rite of passage for English people. They come over here, Hayes pay for their visa, they train them up, and then they get their residency three, four years later and they they go off and, and leave and, and do something else. And that was when I started my first company. So that sort of takes you up to to fingerprint days. Yeah. And, and if we go back to your sort of your teenage years, I mean, was it a passion for marine biology? Like it's a quite specific area to initially want to study. Was that a, a passion? Was that just a random thing and you like science? How did you end up sort of attempting to, to study marine biology? So there's a good and there's a bad reason. So <laughs> the good reason is being very dyslexic. There's not a lot of subjects that I found easy at school. Biology was one that I did. So I, I it came very easily to me. So I scored well in it. So I thought, well, if I'm going to study something, I better do something. I'm going to score well in, otherwise it's a disaster. Um, and and what it was also part of the reason I came to Australia. I've always loved um, underwater fish tanks, all that kind of stuff. I love I love all that. You know, the Great Barrier Reef here obviously was was a drawcard for one of the reasons to wanting to come. So there was an interest there. But the real reason I chose that course in that university was because there was a really hot girl going there, and I wanted to go there too. That is the bad reason. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, at the same time, you were having a go to sort of professional tennis as a serious sort of. Um, yeah, I was. Well. Yeah, I was trying. I mean, it was. I was terrible. Um, I took it ten, the tennis swing's a bit interesting in that I took it up very late. Didn't play tennis much at school. I didn't really play tennis. When I was about 15, 16 years of age. I never really played. And I went to this. I guess it was kind of a trial for an academy, and I just did it for the hell of it. And I was really enjoying tennis, and and I got in. And that was kind of like, oh, my God, I got in and I got sponsored by um, Puma and got sponsored by Nike. It was all part of it being in the academy. It wasn't specific to me. And I was like, well, my God, if I if I can only play tennis for a few years and I can get into this academy, I need, I need to give this a go. But what became apparent quite quickly was that because I hadn't played since I was three, I just didn't have the depth. And the gap to catch up at that age was just so great. 
I knew it just wasn't go- it, it wasn't going to be feasible for me. I just didn't I just didn't have the athleticism. I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the ability. I got good quite quickly, but never really got any better. Um, and then I tried the coaching, but I didn't enjoy the coaching at all. The coaching to me, I found insanely frustrating. You know, you teach someone something and they sort of get it towards the end of the lesson. Then they go and play all week, back the old habits and they come back doing it. And you do it again. You, you know, why am I doing this? This is mental. Um, so that's that's why I didn't do that. But yeah, it was it changed me a lot. It changed my personality. I was incredibly and painfully shy before I um, before I went and played tennis. And that really brought my personality out. So as much as it didn't create a career or any wonderful things like that, it completely changed my life in that it changed my personality and it changed the way I thought about myself. And, and I think it helped me get to know myself a lot better. And then what was your mindset like? It's a 19 to 21. We've tried marine biology. That wasn't quite right. You tried tennis. That wasn't quite right. Then you're sort of working and then dabbling in finance. Were you sort of young and optimistic or were you a bit like, did you feel like you were behind your peers or people maybe who were a bit clear on what they wanted and were still sort of going ahead on that? No, I never, never felt like that, actually. I think I was just trying out different. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My sister knew she wanted to be a lawyer from the age of 14. My brother knew he wanted to be in IT at the age of 15. I had no idea, which used to frustrate me. So I just thought, well, we'll just keep trying stuff. You know, finance was an option because a lot of people in my school went and did finance. It was kind of, you know, one of those things that you do. Um recruitment was never an option i don't think recruitment ever is an option for anyone i don't know or maybe a bit now but back then no one ever came out of school or uni going i'm going to be a recruiter just doesn't doesn't happen it was it was a job that people fell into and that's exactly what happened to me and i just happened to be very good at it and it happened to pay extremely well for at a, at a very young age so for me it was like this is awesome you know i had financially i was ahead of my friends who were at uni because i was already working in recruitment just as they were finishing so they were coming out and going into grad jobs that pay you know in engineering and things like that and marketing that were paying terribly and there was ironing all this commission having a great time so i never had that sort of feeling of, of being behind no yeah because you didn't do three or five years of formal study again you exactly. had more time to experiment in the workforce and try different roles versus if you had have done like a five plus year law degree well interesting point and very interesting in terms of your i mean it's not australian but in terms of the, the subject matter entrepreneurship there were three of us at school who didn't go to uni and all three of us own our own businesses now. And everyone who did go to uni all worked for someone else. So isn't that an interesting, um, interesting point? It's like, I think I've, I've been quoted as saying before university trains you how to work for someone else. That's kind of what it does. Now it's probably not so true now, but it, I think it was very much true that back then. Yeah. And no, I think it's also probably a certain degree of sunk costs. You know, if you've put three, five plus <laughs> years, maybe 50 to $150,000, depending on the country into study, you almost feel like you have to, I think, and you can get sort of stuck yep. down a pathway. Whereas if you're not, like you said, you weren't committed to sport, you hadn't done a five-year sport run or a five-year marine biology and, and got your PhD in that, it's easier to, you're not, you're not holding on to that sort of skill and, and cost investment. Perhaps. No. And, and I'm, I'm not a strategist. I'm a doer. You know, I'm I'm trying to get better at strategy. I've been doing education recently with some of the Harvard Business School stuff to get better at strategy, but I'm very much just, I just do things. Um, there's not, and it sounds horrific, there's not a huge amount of thought behind it. There's more now as I'm, you know, in my 40s, but but back then there was zero thought process. It was just like, that seems like a good idea. Let's do that. Almost new shiny thing. And um, were your parents business owners? Did you run little businesses when you were at sort of school, or like, like at high school or was that not really on your radar? You were a doer. You like trying things. You're no, a no, I did. But the business I did. side came out. When did that? Yeah, sort of yeah, we emerge? did. I had a car washing business. 
um, which we did with my friends. I did lots of little things like that. The, there's a bit of a story as to why I think I was always that mindset from my father, that my father was um, he was a Harley Street dentist. Now, if you don't know much about dentistry in the UK, Harley Street is the, the epitome of, of dentistry. It's the sort of the peak. You know, it's a street in London where you can have your dental practice and you can charge crazy rates because you're in Harley Street and you've reached a certain level of professionalism. And his father was one and his father was one as well. So it's like a family thing. Um and neither my brother or I are dentists, by the way, or my sister. But um, dad found out when I was probably about 10 years old, um, his neck bone was solid. It wasn't segmented. And he was told that he could no longer practice dentistry because of all the bending over. And if he did, he would be in a wheelchair. So he's then in a situation where he's only ever been a dentist. My mother was a nurse. So she has, she wasn't working. She had three kids. She had three kids at private school. Very expensive. Much more expensive in the UK than it is here. And a very expensive house in Surrey. Very So a lot of mortgages and, and costs. And he's suddenly lost his ability to earn. So he went through an incredible process where he, it was at the time when computers were just coming out. So he taught himself to computer program. And then he wrote six books and got them published on it. He started a business importing rap music from the US on CDs. And he's not a rap music fan. And I don't think has ever even listened to one. But he saw an opportunity. And the company is called Moving Music. It was a terrible name. Um, he went and did financial planning. He ended up then sort of creating, I guess you call them seminars and teaching other dentists because he sort of was drawn back to dentistry. So with the music business, unfortunately, he started that with a friend from uni and it actually went very well. Um, and they were one of the first people to ever bring rap music into the UK. But um, his business partner took all the money and disappeared and was never seen again. That's what happened to that one, unfortunately, for him. So I saw some, some successes and failures as well. But he started his seminar business teaching dentists. We used to spend our weekends folding up direct mail and putting it in the envelopes so he could send out 2000. It was an awful childhood in that respect. Everything else was great apart from that part. Um, and then ultimately, he ended up being offered the job as editor of the British Dental Journal because he'd done dentistry, he'd published books, all this sort of thing, which was his dream job. And he did that for the next 20 years before he retired. So I think I saw him just make things happen because he had to. There was no option. You know, there were bills to pay. And, and we wouldn't have known there was any financial stress. I certainly didn't feel it. I can see it now. And reflecting back on it, you can you can notice things. But as a child, you don't notice it. So I think that and watching him go through that at probably that pivotal age where you're sort of 12, 13, 14, 15, had a massive impact on me. And so when you started in recruitment, you did well at it early on, you're earning well, you're enjoying it. Did that idea that one day you'd run your own recruitment business, was that in your head or not until you're in Australia or what sort of triggered that? You're interested think... in business, but to run your own sort of uh, recruitment business. Yeah, someone asked me that the other day and I hadn't actually thought about it before. It wasn't until I was in Australia. I think. I found Australia very encouraging of people want to see you do. I know you have your tall poppy thing that people talk about, but I think people generally want to give you a go. So it seemed like it was much more possible and attainable here to start a business. So I knew I was going to do it, but probably after I'd been here maybe two years, even though it probably took me six years to do it because I was waiting on visas and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I think here... If you start your own business and you call up people and try and win business, people want to give you a go. They want to give you a shot. In London, they do not. They have zero interest. And, and I think the client loyalty here is much stronger. Again, in London, there's no client loyalty from that perspective. It's just transactional. So it just seemed like it was very possible here. So as soon as I sort of made that decision, it was just working towards getting my residency so that I could then go and do that. So do you think in London there was a bias towards like incumbents or big providers who would rather stick with Hayes and try 
the business of someone who's just starting up and they've got, you know, one staff member or versus in Australia, people are more willing to give you a go as a sort of startup sort of uh, business? I think so. I think it depends. I mean, I think if you were to do what I'm doing now, it's different. Like if we were going after, if you'd started a business in London going for startups, which wasn't really an ecosystem back then, you probably would be okay. But if you ring up NatWest as a one person, they're not going to use you. Even if you've worked there and you know half the people there, you know, you're not going to win those clients. And most of the IT recruitment, which was all I'd done, was in banks. So Abbey National, NatWest, JP Morgan, you know, Credit Suisse. You, you just got no shot with them. So it's kind of where do you go? Do you go and do recruitment for the, I don't know, some company in, in the suburbs? That didn't that didn't appeal to me. So I always wanted to be in the city. So I think. Yeah, that's, it, it's much harsher. And I think they will be more likely to have kindness towards you as you learn and develop as a business owner. Whereas in the UK, they'll do everything to destroy you. And your competitors are ruthless. So I just, I'm not saying it's not possible. I just think it's a lot harder to do a business there. Or it would have been at that age, particularly as well. I think it's it's a little bit more ageist in terms of business owners. Again, banks don't want to deal with a 25-year-old. But here, you know, News Limited was one of my first clients. So it, it's just a different, it was just a different mentality, I think. And so what was your first 12 months like running the Nudge Group? You've made the decision, you've got your residency, you're in Australia, you feel the uh, improved, I guess, sentiment or attitude towards new businesses. But what was the actual first 12 months like? So, I mean, Nudge is my third business. So do you mean what was my first 12 months of my first business or first 12 months of Nudge? Because they're very, very different experiences. Well, let's go with your first business first and then we'll circle back to Nudge. So the first business I had was called Fingerprint. Um, Fingerprint was a digital recruitment agency. It was when digital had just become a thing, like digital was new. And I had a office at the end of George Street in the APP building and it was a tiny room and it had no windows. And you didn't know whether it was sunny, you didn't know it was dark, didn't know it was raining. It was awful. And I had a couple of plants in there that I used to talk to. I used to do push-ups. I went slightly insane. The first six months were really hard, just so hard. Um, but I always believed it was going to work. And, and you'll probably ask me why. I've got no idea why. I just did. And I just kept going. And then once you got some flow and I hired my first person that changed everything my actual first hire was a disaster and he actually ripped me off and we won't go into that but let's go my second hire who should have been my first hire and then my third you know and then it grew from there and it became a lot easier but when you're in that windowless room on your own with a phone and it's not a lot of fun it's not a lot of fun at all but it didn't seem that bad. I, I look back at it. I don't look back on it fondly. Some people say, always oh, you look at things. But I actually look back on it and think how horrific it was. But I didn't think it was horrific at the time. So I don't know. That's almost the opposite of what everyone says. <laughs> and, and was that a similar type of business or recruitment? Yeah, yeah. Recru recruitment in the digital space, yeah. Okay. And then when did you decide to sort of transition to the next business? So seven years, I, I ended up getting a business partner in that business who was a gentleman who was a bit older than me, he didn't really work in the business. He was more, I'm not going to say sugar daddy, but he was essentially funding me. Um, we got approached by a broker seven years later for a listed company who wanted to buy us. Probably shouldn't have sold it. Looking back on it now, it's like all those properties you wish you hadn't sold, you wish you kept them all. But as a young man with lots of dollars being thrown in front of you, super exciting. Someone wants to buy something that I've built. We, we sold it. Um, and unfortunately, 
we sold it. We sold it on a great deal. It was a superb deal. It was a great multiple. It was going to set me up really, really well. Um, the GFC kicked in six months after we sold whilst we were doing the earnout, which completely wiped out the, the payment. We got some money, but very, very little comparatively to what we were supposed to. So that was when I finished that. I then ended up, ha- had another friend who had his own recruitment business, so a traditional IT recruitment business, really close friend, actually moved here from London with me at the same time. And he'd started his business. He's not, he's very different to me. He's very analytical, not a very good people person, and was struggling to keep staff. And we were sitting at a Sydney Swans game, actually, which so I had a little phase where I watched a lot of AFL when I first moved here. I, back in back watching rugby again now, but I did have an AFL phase. And I just said to him, why don't you let me buy half? I just finished my other job. I had a little bit of money. I said, let me buy half the business and we'll do it together. And I think we'd had a few beers. So we said, let's talk about this next week. So anyway, we sat down next week and we had another conversation about it. And we decided that's what I'd do. So I then bought half of that business. And we grew that business from like a million dollar turnover to nearly 48 million in seven years. Um, Unfortunately, with that business, I haven't had a lot of luck with business partners. Um, Because we were so different, even though that was such a good thing at the beginning, when you get big and successful and we had, you know, nearly 50 staff, we just couldn't agree on anything. So I let him buy me out. It was his business originally. And so he bought me out of that deal. Um, and then I had about six months off trying to work out what I was going to do before I ended up starting Nudge. And reflecting back from your previous businesses, what advice would you give to other people about choosing a business partner? It's I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give advice. One, I don't have any in Nudge because of my last two experiences. I think the first piece of advice I would give, the biggest problem I had with my first business partner was that he didn't do anything. He was older, a different, completely different stage of life, different monetary costs. You know, didn't have kids, didn't have mortgage. I had, I had financial pressures, and everything was fifty fifty. And we didn't have a um, shareholders agreement, which was a rookie error. So I felt like I was doing all the work, and he was benefiting. And, and that used to, after time, it really began to bother me. So I think having a business partner that if they're not at, they're at the same stage of life with you it's great because you can kind of control how much money you're taking out what you're doing based on how your lives you know are generally going along but if you're not going to do that and you don't have to then make sure you have a really really clear um shareholders agreement that deals with disputes because everyone doesn't think they're going to have a dispute but everybody does have a dispute and it was the same problem with the second business in that we had a great shareholders agreement however at one stage we brought in a ceo to um to run the business for us because we thought it was the right thing to do. It didn't, didn't work out. But when we did that, we changed our shareholders agreement. We took out some of the clauses that dealt with disputes because there were now three shareholders. So we didn't need that. And then when he left, we didn't put them back in. So when those disputes happened again, we didn't have a process to go through legally to be able to deal with disputes. And that kept building the tension and tension and tension, particularly in our relationship. So I think my advice would always be get someone, I think, at a similar stage of life. And if not, make sure your shareholders agreement covers every scenario that you never think will happen because there's a good chance it will. And so would you ever take a business partner in the future, but just with uh, clearer expectations and agreements? Or are you you're sort of focused on being a sole sort of owner moving forward? Nudge is a bit different in that. Everyone that works in Nudge, nearly everyone that works in Nudge, has worked for me in one of my previous two businesses. And one of the reasons for creating Nudge, to some degree, was to give those people equity in a business so that they could get some sort of pay or win or you know something, like, like a thank you, because they helped me build my wealth and my other businesses. So 
it's a different kind of business partner. I, I will never not be the controlling business partner again. I've become a control freak. I mean, never say never, but uh, not right now. We're only, what, three and a half years in. But it, my plan is not to necessarily relinquish control, no. But I have built a business that everybody owns and that everybody gets to share in it. So it's, it's a different kind of thing. And we do have a very good shareholders agreement. But considering I'm never going to give up more than 51%, then the dispute thing becomes less of a less of an issue. But I don't think I'd go into an equal partnership again, um, just having had two bad experiences. There's a lot of pluses to having business partners. There's a lot of things I miss about not having business partners, but I prefer not having business partners now. But maybe it's because it's my third business. If it's my first, it'd be very different because you're trying to figure everything out. And what are one of those main things that you miss from having a business partner? A, a second opinion on everything. Someone to bounce ideas off. Someone to someone you can be really honest with. You know, there's there's a, you've got to show a certain degree. Employees will feel fearful if they see you worried or panicked, or you know, you can't necessarily. I'm not saying you should make out that everything's all right when it's not, but there's also only a certain amount you can discuss. You know, they, the last thing an employee wants is the owner of the business to come and going. I'm really worried about the next six months. I don't know how we're going to make it. That's not what they want to hear, right? So you can have that conversation with a business partner. You cannot have that conversation with an employee. So mainly that talking about business ideas, throwing things around. A, almost a sense check or a devil's advocate. It's it's that's the really key thing. Now you can get that with other business owners, and I'm I'm a member of a lots of different organizations like Cub, which is which are business owners, and I've got lots of friends who are business owners. But it's still not quite the same because they never understand your business the way they would if they were a business partner. Yeah, and so um, Nudge Group has grown really well, growing 135 percent last financial year. Um, doing over 2.6 million annual revenue, became one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So was there something that you did in in the sort of early years that sort of set you up for that growth or what do you (laughs) sort of attribute that sort of um, fast growth to? Partly COVID. I mean, we literally started six months before COVID. Um, COVID, if you think about what we do, we recruit for startups and scale-ups. Startups and scale-ups are cloud businesses, software as a service businesses, e-commerce businesses. What flourished during COVID? SaaS businesses, e-commerce businesses, cloud businesses, because everyone was stuck. So that and I think the Australian ecosystem has just gone through extraordinary growth during that time. But I think the main thing that we did outside of those conditions, because you can still have those conditions and fail, is that we built a different model for recruitment designed specifically for startups and scale-ups. And we focus just on startups and scale-ups. We won't work with corporates. We won't do anything else. You know, a lot of recruiters work in that space, but they also do everything else. We designed everything from a founder's mindset to benefit the founder. I think we went and we still do go to market with a give before we receive mentality. You know, the way that we work is that I probably meet 10 or 15 founders a, a month we ask them what they're trying to do. Whatever it is they're trying to do, we'll help them. And it's usually not recruitment. And we help them for nothing because we believe that if they grow and succeed, then they'll end up hiring people and then they'll come back and use us because we were nice to them, so to speak. So, for example, we'll help them get funding. We introduce them to VCs. We have some a lot of contacts in that space. We might put them on our YouTube show so that we can push out their... Um, their, their profiles. We might help them launch into a new country. So we've got offices obviously now in Singapore and London and the Philippines. We're about to open one in Dubai. So when someone's going to that country, we can introduce them to the people there to shortcut things. We can help them. It really doesn't matter. It's an endless list. I won't go on or the podcast will never finish. But we go out and there's never any expectation that they have to come back and use our services. Some do, some don't. Most do. And I think going out with that, there's no sales model. There's no, we don't do sales at all. We don't sell nudge. We go out and we help people knowing that they will come back and use us because that's the way the world works. 
And I'd never had the freedom or ability to be able to do that model before. And everyone always talks about how it works. I'll tell you, when you start doing it, it's pretty nerve wracking, but it works incredibly. And when we really started pushing that method of, of growing the business, it went gangbusters and, and continues to with that same model. And were some of the founders initially a bit sceptical if they didn't know you and you said, hey, I'll help you with all these things. And it's like, well, but what's in it for you? Or or did they sort of just see the benefit because you were uh, demonstrating the giving and they, they were never so sceptical? I, you know, it's no one's ever asked that question before. They weren't. I mean, maybe one or two have said, mm, but really they weren't. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, it's very genuine. And it, and it really is. You know, we when we film our YouTube show, as an example, it cost me about $1,200, $1,500 an episode to film. That's expensive. Um, we've had people who have come and on that show, and then they've ended up becoming unicorns, billion-dollar companies, and they've never used our services. And I still talk to them, and we still chat. And, and there's, again, no expectation. So it really was genuine. And I think it's not trying to be genuine. If it is genuine, it comes across as genuine. And secondly, founders will take help wherever they can get. They don't care. They just need to get stuff done. So they don't, they're don't. they too excited, too focused, too stressed to worry about whether or not, you know, if this guy's going to help me, I'm just going to take it. <laughs> yeah. And um, is there anything in your recruitment model, apart from your sort of the philosophy of giving and helping, that you do differently that suits a startup or scale up more than, you know, big corporate, big government sort of recruitment type Everything. providers? Everything. I mean... One of the reasons I wanted to start this business was that we had done recruitment in my previous business for startups, and we'd done it really poorly. And I think most recruiters do it really poorly, not because they're doing a bad job, but because they don't have the education around startups and scale-ups. They don't understand the difference between pre-seed, seed, series A, B, C, D. They don't understand the different kind of individuals you need at different stages of funding. They don't understand how to sell an ESOP. They don't understand how to sell a job in a recruitment process. It's completely different. When you're selling a startup, you don't sell the job first. Like if you're going to try and hire someone for ComBank, you go out and talk about the job. When you're trying to sell a startup, you have to sell the founder first. Then you have to sell the company. And then last and only last, you sell the job. So you have to reverse the model. So the education was a big part. And, and we don't, like I said, we don't do everything else. So all the consultants will go through a three-month education process, which is interesting because a lot of them had worked for me before, as I said, and it took them a while to get it, which made me even more confident that they really didn't understand it before. We have uh, interest-free payment plans. Um, we will sometimes take equity in lieu of fees if people want to do that as well. Um, there's, there's it, really everything we do is designed specifically for them. We have the nudge experience, which is that sort of early stage model that then moves into nudge as a service, which is an on-site model that reduces their costs like 70% when they're really growing. Um, all those kinds of things. I mean, yeah, you can go, have a look on the website. I could talk all day about it, but everything we have done is specifically designed for them and would not work with a corporate. It's just our model wouldn't work. And what was it like managing that growth? So you've got this theory that if you help and if you adjust and you focus on startups, you can provide a unique value. And once it actually works and you're, you're getting a heap of clients and growth, what was it like sort of managing that growth and scaling it? Really hard and a lot of mistakes this year. Um, it's a good day to do this, actually. We just did our strategy session next year, uh, yesterday for next year. So we do one every quarter, um, my exec team and myself. And we really reflected on what we'd done badly this year, which was quite a lot of things. And I think we tried to do too many things. I think we tried to launch too many products. Um, I don't say we necessarily grew too quickly, but I think we we lost focus too much. There were so many people wanting us to do other things and it's all so exciting. But we, what we really need to do is we hadn't bedded ourselves down in doing what we do so well, it's ridiculous. And having that very repeatable in our, for example, London office, Singapore office, Dubai office, you know, we need to have the process almost like a franchise. So it's just down pat. And then we just do that really, really well. 
I think we moved on to the next level too quickly. So we're sort of pulling back a little bit on that and getting that done this next year. Um, with the whole working from home business, we've always been very flexible around that and, and want to continue, but we've definitely lost some of our culture. We were never five days a week in. So we actually are going to implement one day a week in the office, which is nothing, right? But I do think because we just sometimes just don't see people for months and you you lose something. You do lose something. You might see them once a month at our monthly meeting that everyone has, does have to come to. I think once a week is going to be better. So we definitely let that, that go a bit. Um, but I think mainly just launching too many products and trying to do too many things before other things were bedded down properly. So there's certain products or service offerings you're sort of shutting down or putting on pause for a little while? Not shutting down. They're still there, but probably not pushing them as hard. So what I'm talking about here is our later stage products for companies when they get to really big scale-ups. Um, we've got products for that, but we were going out and really pushing that. I think we we just didn't need to do that yet. We, we can have it there. It's ready to go. But I, I think we were almost betting the house on it kind of thing. Like everyone was very focused on that and not as focused on what we were doing before. And I think that was a mistake. So yeah, just easing up. And we're probably not going to hire as quickly as we had planned. Um, and our model of how we grow into a new country we, I think we've really got that right last year. That was one of the things we really got right. So we want to focus on doing that in Dubai as well. And the amazing reason for Dubai, climate tech is obviously a huge sector. Um, it's a sector I'm really interested in, but also it's a pretty scary time all over the world. London office is shocking at the moment. They're dying. No one's hiring in London. So they're doing a lot of work in the US at the moment. But Dubai is obviously in the same time zone as them. It's completely recession proof. Everyone's always buying oil. They're never going to run out of money. So it's going to sort of add another level of um, hedging, if you like, to the business. So that, that's, I think, where we're where we're sort of going to focus now for the next 12 months. Yeah, and I think um, especially probably more so now than maybe five or 10 years ago, there's a lot of excitement of working in a startup, um, but people don't always know the reality on the insides. Are, are there... <laughs> challenges of working a startup that somebody again maybe they are working at Combank in a tech role and think hey I want to work in a startup that not that you would discourage them from doing it but just questions you would ask or things you would sort of explain to them that they might not be aware of if they've never worked in a sort of startup or a um, yeah. much smaller business there's a lot there's a lot and I used to I used to help um, a company called YBF run a course for people who wanted to make that transition the language is different for a start that's the thing that freaks people out you know you can't go into a startup and start talking about digital transformations they haven't been built anything yet. They're not going to transform yet. But I think understanding yourself is probably the most important part because, as we touched on earlier, the kind of individuals you're going to hire at a pre-seed level or a seed level or a Series A or a Series B or a Series C even are completely different human beings. So you need to work out where am I best suited? Am I great with ambiguity? Do I like to do lots of different things? Then I'm really going to be a, you know, a pre-seed seed. Do I love focus? Am I really good at something? Well, then I probably need to go in later stage. It's understanding where companies are during that funding cycle and the kind of people that work in those funding cycles. Um, it's not all beanbags and ping pong. In fact, no one ever plays a ping pong table. The hours are shocking. Um, they really are shocking. It's so hard. It's so much harder than people can imagine working in a startup. But at the same time, it's insanely rewarding, which is why so many people do it. But it's definitely not for everybody. So. I would really do your research on the company. If you're looking at one, um, I would do some research on yourself. Um, we're actually in the process of building like a self-test where people can go through it on our website and it'll tell them where they're probably going to be more suited. Um, it's early stage or later stage or whatever it is. The money's terrible. 
Um, not everyone becomes a millionaire, you know, all these kinds of things. It's kind of like I liken it to the fashion industry. My wife's in fashion, so I, I know quite a lot about that. Everyone always wanted to work in fashion because they think it's going to be super cool. It's such hard work. It's a terrible hours and it's terrible money. It's not dissimilar. Um, I mean, it's very different being a founder than working in a startup, but I think there's a lot of shocked realities of people working in startups. And, and that's something we spend an enormous amount of time doing before we put people through to startups is making sure they really, really understand what it is they're getting themselves in for. Because the last thing you want to do is go in and then leave three months later. It's, it's so so detrimental to a startup to have that. Yeah, so are there people that you essentially, yeah, sort of filter out and say, hey, actually, if you want certainty in this and you want to be a deep specialist and you want the same salary or more and or you expect to get all, all these sort of work-life balance and perks, actually, you should probably just stick with a big four bank. Like, don't work for yeah. FinTech and probably don't do that. Probably 60% of the candidates we meet, we would say you shouldn't be working in startups. And, and do they take it well and say, oh, well, no. I dodged a bullet? Or they, <laughs> they say, I'll prove you wrong and no, 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 oh, you don't know me. They don't take it well at all. Um, <laughs> some do, some genuinely go, oh, look, now you've explained to me like, you're actually right. And and you, you can soften it. You don't necessarily have to go back to combat. You can say you really need to go to a later stage scale up, like go and work for Safety Culture or Canberra or someone that hmm. isn't really a startup. Yeah, a big scale um, up, but just yeah, not yeah. like an early Which stage startup. Like but no, they don't. people don't like being told things like that at all. Um, and people rarely see themselves as they are. You know, I think that's true in any kind of, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a parent, whether it be a student, whether it be an employee, they rarely see themselves as they actually are. So sometimes the mirror in front of them, which is us, isn't always the mirror they want to see, the reflection they want to see. <laughs> and what about on the client side, the clients, uh, you know, the startup founders, do they sometimes also have similar delusions? Oh, if I hire someone who works at, you know, ComBank or NAB, they'll be able to bring all this value. And you say, well, actually, here's why a lot of them might not bring the value that you think. And here's why we should actually get someone from a different background than they might expect. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably the biggest mistake founders make when they kind of go, when their startup's been successful and they want to go and hire a sales manager from Oracle or Salesforce, which is going to be a disaster. Um, and, but they, I think they just see the logo and think that they're going to be able to, they don't understand. Once you explain it to them, they're fine. But one of the, the best things about working with startup founders is they genuinely know they don't know, most of them. They listen, they want your advice, they take counsel really, really well, and you prove to them that you are worth much more. You're, you're far more of a trusted advisor than you are a recruiter. We don't see ourselves as a recruitment firm. We we only charge for recruitment, but we do so many other things. So I think we see us as a growth consultancy. That's a really terrible term, but I haven't been able to come up with anything better. But um, that's the best thing about founders is they genuinely listen. We actually, there's a lot of founders who are egotistical lunatics, right? Um, actually, a lot's not fair. There's There's a fair few. And you don't really know that. And we won't recruit for them once we find that out because, one, we don't want to necessarily put people in that environment. So we actually review all our clients every quarter, and we usually fire two or three, nearly every quarter, um, because you don't know until you start to work with a founder what they're really like. And they don't ever see it coming, which I always find intensely amusing. Maybe that's the evil side of me. But we're very mindful of making sure that if we are going to recruit for startups, having said what I said earlier, how hard it is, it's got to be the right environment. We don't want to put people in horrible environments. And there are there are out there. And there's not actually loads is there's not many, probably five, 10 percent, but um they're certainly there. And what are some of the red flags? Is it they're not willing to listen to some of your guidance? Yeah. Like they're insisting that they have to have this education or work background or or they're turning away people who you know would be a good sort of psychometric fit, but they don't want them or they don't see it? Or what are some of those disqualifiers that would make you sort of fire a client? Yeah, I don't think you could ever 
judge someone for not wanting to hire someone that we think fits their company, right? So I, I don't think that's a, that's a, that's not necessarily a red flag. Look, some of them are just dickheads, and they, that just becomes apparent over time. You can't do anything about that. But I think it's the ones you see how they interact with their team. You see how they interact with us. Some of them are very stubborn in terms of they're not they don't have um an open mindset at all and if you don't have an open mindset you can't run a startup i don't believe it's just crazy everything's changing all the time you've got to admit you're wrong all the time some people just are not like that i think it's, it's mainly personality traits than anything else um or how how they treat their team how they talk about their team how they talk about people during the recruitment process as well you know even if they don't like them there's, there's yeah it's a personality thing is there's too many too many flags but they're not consistent mm. um Okay, and so you're running offices in a number of cities and countries. Um, you know, obviously grew up overseas and been in Australia for a long time. What trends do you see in Australian entrepreneurship um, and all, all the different startups that you sort of touch in, in various ways? And then what are Australian entrepreneurs doing well? And then what are areas where Australian entrepreneurs have, you know, extra opportunity that they're leaving on the table? I love what's happened in Australia the last few years. I think it's amazing. Um, I think Australians make natural founders. They're very... Um, positive people generally, um, which is a real important trait. And I think they they do tend to have that. I think where we're behind here, it's probably, if you, uh, put it this way, if you look at the ecosystem now, there's a lot of seed Series A companies, maybe a few Series B. There's not a lot of past ones that are Series C, D. Or, there's not a lot of canvas. There's not a lot of safety cultures, put it that way. Um, there's the old sort of band from that are corporates now, the Sikhs and the real estates of this world. But if you look at the new ones, there aren't that many. Alaskan can't really be considered a startup anymore. Um, so there's not actually that many bigger ones. And I think we don't have the experience of understanding that there are early stage specialists and that they are going to jump from company to company and be early stage specialists. And they're not good in the later years. I think all founders believe everyone who starts with them, particularly the first 10, are going to be with them forever. Reality is when a startup makes that transition to scale up, probably five of those people won't be right for your business. And they don't see that early enough to be able to deal with it in a good way and then it ends up becoming a problem and they don't want to, they don't want to let them go or, or because they feel that they're indebted to them because they've got them. So, you know, it, that's, it's that problem. I think it's just experience of we just haven't had that many. I don't think we do our ESOPs very well here. Um, they're all the same. They're, they should, they can do anything you like with an ESOP. There's, it's a very basic system here. Um, I think that's done so much better overseas. But other than that, I think we're catching up. I mean, I think we generally are, we adopt new things very quickly as, as a country. And I consider myself Australian, I've been a citizen since 2005, even though I'm English, I, I talk as if I'm Australian because I've been here so long. And I think it's a very embracing country for it. Um, but again, there is a little bit of that tall poppy stuff that does come in as people start to have a little bit of success. But I just don't think we have the mentorship and the the experience of, the US or the UK in terms of successful people. You know, there aren't that many melanies from Canberra that you can go and talk to. So I think that's probably where we we lack. But that's population thing and just the fact that we're behind, I guess, in, in the startup race, if you like. So, so a lot of uh, startups and a broad pool of the early stage, but not a lot of scale-ups like, so that make that leap to, you know, 200 to 1,000 staff, but a lot of sort of sub-50 staff who are, doing good things but just not making it to that sort of next evolution yeah i think it's smaller here you know series a in london is probably 150 people a series a in sydney is probably 25 again mm. it's just it's just it's just how we have a smaller population we've got um, smaller people to sell to smaller customer base all those kinds of things so that's going to change you know over the next few years you'll see a lot of these there's a lot 
that are going to move up and and it's going to become it's going to become really I'm really fascinated to see what happens and I think we don't think big enough here I think that's changed companies like Blackbird who've come out and said we'll only talk to you if you want to go global have made everybody start thinking globally which they didn't used to do so I think that's probably been the biggest positive I've seen everybody wants to go global which is exactly why we went global because the need was there so I think that's a really really positive thing that's that's changed it probably in the last 18 months I would say because then it appeals to a global market that, like you said, it raised the ambitions beyond, well, I've got these big Australian clients or businesses and, like you said, 25 staff, but how do I go global and get 200 yeah. or 2,000 staff? And even COVID helped that. You know, I think people were very city-centric. You know, this is a Melbourne business. This is a Sydney business. So that, that's kind of gone too, which is really good because I hated that. <laughs> and do you think you would have been able to go global as quickly if it wasn't sort of for COVID and people being more comfortable with remote? Or like you said, UK staff recruiting to the US or Dubai or... People expect more of a localized recruiter or not so much? Great question. Um, I can't give you an answer for that. I don't think I would have. I think the when we were all locked up, it just seemed because everything became so video, it just seemed possible. Whereas it might not have, it's not that I wouldn't have done it. I just might not have thought about it so soon. Um, again, great example. Like we interview candidates. So you think about that. Every recruitment company before COVID was in the city because candidates had to come in and see you to meet you before you'd send them to a job. So you had to be in the city so they could get you easily during their lunch break. Now, since COVID, we've done one candidate interview face to face, one. So we could be based anywhere. You know, that's completely changed in like that, bang, overnight. And I think the same thing happened with people's mindsets about the world. Maybe it brought the world closer. I don't even know. I really, I'd have to think about that. I've never been asked that question. I would think we probably wouldn't have gone global as quickly. I think you're probably right. Now I sort of sit here and reflect on it quickly. <laughs> and do your sort of locations, again, naturally recruit across multiple? If you've got a client who's hiring in Sydney, Singapore and Dubai, you, you have you know time zone considerations, but generally you have a similar team managing that yeah. client versus Absolutely. like the Dubai office managers the Dubai clients and Dubai candidates. Well, yeah, I mean, moment Dubai, we ran out of London, um, but we will open in Dubai. And we ran Singapore out of Sydney for a while. Now we've sort of got people in Sydney. So our model is to run it out of a hub. And then once it gets to a certain sort of level, we'll put people on the ground. So we'll continue to do that. I mean, we do a lot of recruitment in the US. I'm not ready to open there. It's such a big, massive, terrifying place. It's going to cost a fortune to go in there. We need to get everything else working so well. Same with Europe. We'll run Europe out of London. Um, Singapore's really our hub for stuff we do in Hong Kong or KL. Um, China's on the on the question mark for us next week. They're going to open up again to the world soon, which apparently is what they tell me next quarter. So there's all those questions. I mean, it's been very strategic. In London was obvious. I'm from London. I have contacts there. There's a lot of companies that go to London and come here, and there's a lot of companies here that want to go to London. Singapore is always in that same sort of triangle. They are always most of the clients that we have who are either in Australia or Singapore or Australia London are also in the third one or opening in the third one. So that was just logical. And it's the only credible place in asia where you you know that's why there's so many businesses starting there and hong kong's obviously you know died in some respects so everyone's gone to singapore so that was obvious dubai is the climate tech thing as i spoke about earlier so it's quite purposeful why we do these things um but we recruit in canada we recruit in south africa all over the place so um but there are specific markets we want to go after but if a client wants to wants us to hire somewhere for them then, then we will it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to us and do you find when you chat to other friends running other recruitment businesses, do they think, are you a bit of an outlier in that sense? I mean, a global business, a big global recruitment has offices everywhere, but at your sort of scale to have such a broad geographic footprint, is that still unusual? This is quite bad, Derek, but I don't talk to any other recruitment owners. I can't stand recruiters. I really can't. I know that's bad. 
I've a, a lot of my friends own recruitment companies. Um, but we don't, the, the, I, they're my friends because we all used to work together when there were, you know, there was only about eight recruitment companies when I came to Australia. <laughs> now it's like 5,000. Um, but I don't really catch up with any recruitment owners. I really don't. And I don't go to any recruitment events. And like I said, I really don't see us as a recruitment business. Recruitment is what we charge for, but we do so many other things, so many other things. Um, I go to a lot of startup events. I go to a lot of scale-up events. I speak at events. I judge competitions. I go on podcasts. I do shows. But in recruitment, I do almost nothing. So I have no idea. But probably, I, they, maybe they have gone global. I literally, I couldn't tell you. I think they don't work in our space. No one really works in our space. There's only a couple of others. And they are global, actually, interestingly enough, who do the startup scale-ups. But all my other friends who do more traditional recruitment, I have no idea what they do. I don't think they need to go global. Now, the companies they're working for are probably larger. You know, Commonwealth Bank is going, as we you keep using them as an example, <laughs> hires goodness knows how many people a year. A startup might hire five. So you need mm. more clients. You need a bigger client base. And if Commonwealth Bank launch into the UK, they're not going to ask their recruiter here to do that for them. Whereas a founder will because of the different kind of relationship that you have. Yeah, and they're the direct decision maker as well versus a hiring manager in IT in Sydney. Exactly. You know, it's not the same hiring manager in London, even if it's the same, you know, QBE or whoever. We should be um, getting Combank to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, so if we zoom out a bit and um, to someone who's maybe 18 to 21 today, so they might have just finished high school, they might have finished TAFE or uni, and they're sort of not quite sure what to do and they've got different interests like you had when you were a teenager, <laughs> what advice would you give them, um, you know, to maybe know whether, again, startups might be on the tongue a bit and they think, I, I should give that a go, or they might not have thought of it but not know whether they're a fit. What would you say to someone at that age who's trying to figure out um, start a business, work in a startup? You know, I think it's a different world now. I think if I was in Australia and I was that age, I would tell myself to go and start a business straight away. I mean, I couldn't do that because I was on a visa initially and, and I just think it was different. But I think entrepreneurship... You, you, no one ever used that word when I was a teenager. Very rarely. It was Richard Branson. That was it, right? There wasn't anyone else. So it, I would just go go and start something. Now, if you can't afford to do that, do a side hustle. But just get into it straight away. You don't need to go and get a job. I know a lot of people say, go and get a job, You know, learn your craft. I don't believe that. That's not my advice to someone. It's the advice of a lot of people. My advice is start right now. Don't wait. Get on with it because that's the only way you learn how to be an entrepreneur. There's nothing that can teach you how to be an entrepreneur. Certainly working for someone does not teach you how to be an entrepreneur. And there's no right or wrong way to be an entrepreneur. There's just your way. So just get, just literally get out there and get on with it. Excellent. And um, what about... <laughs> Gosh, what have I just said? All these people are going to be throwing away good career jobs and never mind. No, I no, do. No, I, I stand I by it. I stand by it. Absolutely. When, when you're young, you've got that, like you, you know, if you're sort of 18 to 19 and you start something and it doesn't, you know, go anywhere, it's not a waste and you can always, you know, have do a gap year or do something else or yeah. then, you know, get a job. So it's sort of, um, you have a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of um, options to, you know, you're not, like you said, you haven't got the mortgage and the, the kids and all that yep. sort of stuff when you're usually when you're 18 to 20. So you've got the time and space to sort of try more things and figure out what you're good at and what you like. 100%. 100%. But uh, yeah, I think once you've started it, you'll never go and get a job. I can never go and get a job. It's been 18 years now. I could never go and get another job. It just, I can't even... It even gives me, makes me, I don't know, makes me tremble. I can't even think about it. <laughs> so would you be nervous if someone had run a startup for five years and had moderate success and they wanted to apply for a job with one of your clients? What would you sort of say to them or to the No, client? no, I, I think some people don't enjoy it. Um, I think some people aren't entrepreneurs. 
It's it's not a there's not a lot of fun things. There's a lot of unfun things about being an entrepreneur. Far more than fun things, but it's it's something that I think is just within you in some ways. Gosh, that sounds terrible. It sounds so corny, but it it it's a it's a way. Oh, this is really I'm I'm throwing out all the really bad lines here. It's a way of life. It's it's a way of living, and I think you either enjoy it or you don't. I think if you've tried it and you gave it a good go and you don't want to do it again, then it wouldn't bother me. If you said. Oh, you know, I might start another company, but I might get a job. That would worry me because I don't think there's you, you. You don't want one or the other. You want one or the other, literally. So that would bother me. But I think if people have tried it, it's not for them. Absolutely, that's fine. That's, I wouldn't have an issue with that. I, we actually have quite a lot of candidates like that who have uh, run yeah. something, for and they're a while good. And they're really good. To... Yeah, yeah, they're they're excellent candidates because they've got a level of understanding of what the entrepreneurial founder is going through. And if they hate it, that's great. But they don't. A lot of people come out of running their businesses going, "I don't want to be the founder anymore. I want to be number one or number two or whatever mm. it is." You know, yeah, maybe like a CTO I mean. instead yeah. of a founder or a head of sales. Well, that, not I the, think they're great. Those candidates are actually some of the best candidates you'll find because their level of understanding of what it takes and what needs to happen is so much greater, which just makes it so much easier for the founder. Mm. And, and so, what about the Nudge Group in the next sort of five years? Again, you, like you said, you, you've got this big geographical expansion. You've got these uh, synergistic ways in which you sort of help startups to grow. Yeah. Um, where do you see the sort of medium-term vision for the Nudge Group going? We have a really simple mission in that respect. Everyone lost that word mission, so I thought I'd better throw it in. I don't ever use it, but I thought I saw when you I saw you going to ask me that question. I thought, oh, I'll use the mission word. Um, where we want Nudge to be is really simple. I want on a global scale, any business that gets any founder or any startup rather than business, sorry, that gets their first big funding raise, whether it be a seed or pre-seed or a series A or, the, or, or a decent funding raise, and they've already hired all their friends and family that they know. I want the first thing they do when they get that funding is to go, oh, now we can call Nudge. That's it. Not necessarily to hire, but I want that to be the thing to do. We've first got, we've, you know, we've got our product, we've got our market fit, we know what we're going to do. Someone's given us some money to really go for it. We need to call Nudge. That's that's what we want to be. That's how Nudge wants to exist. I can liken it to, if you think about maybe, I'll give you an Australian one because it's easier. Obviously, it's an Australian podcast. If you think about when job boards first came out, Seek, Seek won it, right? They, they killed that. So when you wanted to put a job board up, what did you do? You went to Seek. You didn't go to my career. You didn't go to career one. You might have put it on there as well, but you went to Seek first. I want a similar sort of thing that when you get your funding, you call Nudge globally. That's what that's what we're aiming for. That and might be a more than five years, but we'll see. Hopefully not. And, and do you have you know partnerships with any formally or informal sort of venture capitalists? So when they've got the um, yeah, they put the funding in and obviously want it to be successful. They sort of connect the founder to you, or is it the yep. founders find you through what you do? Or no, we do a lot. We work with nearly all the venture capital firms. We work with a lot of private equity firms. We're growing that network overseas. Um, I go out a lot with venture capital guys for dinner to find out where their minds at. Well, they're all different. They never say the same thing. Interestingly enough, um, but no, we work very closely with them. We also give them deal flow. You know, we have a, as as I mentioned earlier, we have a credible amount of founders I meet that are always looking for funding. So they want the deal flow. They need to see what maybe a hundred businesses to fund five. So they need to see them. So we have a very symbiotic relationship. Um, they don't tend to force founders, but they'll often pass our details on. Private equity firms use us more. I think they're more vested in the company because they bought the whole thing rather than just sort of giving some money over. But we work with all of those. We have partnerships with people like Microsoft and Google. We have partnerships with lawyers. We have partnerships with visa people. We have partnerships across the whole ecosystem. 
it's a very and it's one of the best things about the ecosystem is it's a very collaborative ecosystem and i love that about it and everyone works together and no one ever really expects anything other than the respect and and making sure you do a good job if someone refers you and it, that's you don't get that in corporate world it doesn't happen and what about sort of startups without funding you know bootstrap revenue generating sort of startup um, probably not going to grow as quickly, but you know, just slightly different sort of model. Do, yep. do you work with those as well, absolutely. or once they're at the point where they're you know building a team and growing? No, absolutely, we do that. I mean, that's kind of where things like our six month payment plan come in. You know, if you if you think about the average recruitment fee in Sydney is probably about eighteen thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. Um, now, if someone says, "Oh, yeah, we'll find you, we'll find you a senior developer," it's going to you're going to have to pay us eighteen thousand dollars on the day they start. That sounds very intimidating. If you say we'll find you a senior developer and you're going to pay us three grand a month for six months, doesn't sound anywhere near as intimidating. They also can see the value of that person whilst they're paying for it. If it's a salesperson, they can sometimes even drive in or marketing more revenue than than they're actually costing it. So that's part of the reason we have those payment plans. You know ones that are funded, they don't have cash flow problems because they don't really have cash flow. They just get given money to grow. So they can pay up front. They often do. But the bootstrap ones, they love the payment plan. That that was exactly why we created it. It was designed for them. I mean, other people use it as well because they like it because they like the mindset of the recurring revenue, SaaS, you know, it's kind of their world. So they align with it. But it was really more designed for those cash-strapped um, kind of bootstrapped organizations that are, that are growing slower, but still need the expertise. And, and even more importantly, they get the person that's right for them, which is why they might want to use our services or they haven't got the time to do it themselves, which, whichever it is. And do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? The future of Australia podcast, the future of Australia. I was trying to think if there's anything poignant I could say, but I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Other than I think the future of Australia is very bright. I think we're going to sidestep this downturn, not completely, but a lot more than everyone else. Um, and I think that the ecosystem of startups and scale-ups here in Australia is crazy. And it's going to go through such a beautiful maturing process over the next five years. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.